0: Well, if you were born between 1914 and 1929, you're part of what has come to be known as the greatest generation. Men and women from this generation grew up during the Great Depression only to come of age and be faced with World War II. And sacrificing their lives either on the battlefront or on the home front, they won the greatest war, returned home and fashioned America into a superpower. And they did all this without much complaining. For this reason, Tom Brokaw in his book of the same name labels them as the greatest generation. I think few would disagree. That generation was a responsible generation. And growing up during the Great Depression, they were a frugal generation as well. One of their mottos was, use it up, wear it out, make it do or do without. They were a humble generation, Brook observes, quote, the World War II generation did was did what was expected of them, but they never talked about it. It was part of the code. There's no more telling metaphor than a guy in a football game who does what's expected of him, makes an open field tackle, and then gets up and dances around. When Jerry Kramer threw the block that won the ice bowl in sixty seven, he just got up and walked off the field. End quote. Generation also was a loyal generation. People of that generation took their marriage vows seriously. out writes again, it was the last generation in which, broadly speaking, marriage was a commitment and divorce was not an option. End quote. For new marriages in 1940, one in six ended in divorce compared to one in two by 1990. To that generation, there was no hanging out or hooking up. Men asked women on real dates. And when a girl caught a man's heart, he proposed, they got hitched, and they were married for the next 60 years. That's just how it worked. Much more can be said about this generation, but truly they were one of the greatest in our nation's history. And in general, when it comes to that older generation of any age, God has much to say in his word about honoring them. And respecting them. Job 12:12 12, 12 says, "Wisdom is with aged men; with long life is understanding." Vickers 1932 says, "You shall rise up before the gray-headed and honor the aged." Proverbs 16:31 says, "A gray head is a crown of glory; it is found in the way of righteousness." I just say, by the way, side note here, you know, I've got a relative who shall remain unnamed who secretly has a full head of gray hair but does it every month. They might not like these verses or agree with them too much, but it's true. And then, of course, we have the commandments about honoring one's father and mother. Exodus 20.12, honor your father and mother that your days may be prolonged in which the Lord your God gives you. And then Exodus 21.15, he who strikes his father or mother shall surely be put to death. So, big deal about honoring your parents. The point of these verses and those like them is that the older generation, they've been there, they've done that. They have more, they have far more knowledge and wisdom and experience than the younger. Therefore, you should show them respect. This is honoring to God. And the church especially should be thankful for that older generation. For they provide an example of godliness for the younger Now, this being said, although the older generation should respect and honor the older generation, old age does not necessarily lead to godliness. In other words, there are some people who seemingly grow more and more wicked with age. Even older men and women still need to be exhorted at times for the struggle with sin continues. It's going to continue for all of us until we die, even when you're getting older. And furthermore, older people sometimes can have a snare that younger people don't necessarily have. It's the snare of bad habits. As years go by, habits are formed that become extremely difficult to break. I remember when I was in high school my family and I went on a trip to Europe and we were in Italy. I'm half time, my grandma's from there, so we went to the Italy tour and we went to Pompeii. If you're not familiar with Pompeii, it was an ancient city that was totally destroyed and then entombed by a volcano. But they excavated the city, and now you can walk through it. It's pretty cool to see. They even excavated the old Roman roads throughout the whole little town. And that was really fun to see. There's something strange about the roads, though. Everywhere you looked, on every road, there were these two ruts dug into the road, these parallel ruts. They looked like train tracks, but they were dug into the road. For a while, we wondered what they were, what caused them, but then a a guide filled us in. They were created by chariots or carts. The chariots or the carts, they they ran on these roads so much, these stone roads, that over time, the wheels actually dug ruts into the road, three, four inches deep, and they became like tracks. You see, though, if you have a road with a rut in it like that, you're pretty much forced to drive in the rut because if you don't, and you accidentally slip into it, you could seriously damage your old wooden wheels or whatever they were using. And so these chariots, they were just driving in the ruts, and they dug them deeper and deeper and deeper as the years go by. And pretty soon, actually, it would become difficult to get out. The best thing you could do is just stick to the rut until you pass through the town. The same thing happens with people, oftentimes older people with bad or sinful habits. They do the same thing over And over and over again, year after year, pretty soon they've dug a rut for themselves and they get stuck in it. And as years go by, they just dig themselves deeper and deeper into a sinful habit. And soon it becomes extremely difficult, if not impossible to, to break them free. All this being said, just because you're older, it doesn't mean you're perfected or free from sin. And to the contrary, some older men and women can have long standing sin patterns that are difficult to break. And this is why even the older generation needs admonishment from God's Word. Why am I bringing all this up? Well, from Titus 2 1 through 3, our text for this morning, we find such admonishment for that older generation. So if you haven't already, turn there now. Open your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 through 3. The older generation is not left without exhortation, and to the contrary, Paul has specific words just for them. In Titus 2, what Paul is doing, he's, he's painting a multi-generational portrait. He's showing us this is what the older generation should look like, and this is what the younger generation should look like. If you haven't noticed yet, Titus, it's, it's a book of lists, or as I like to call them, Portraits. I like to think of these lists as portraits with each item on the list being like a brush stroke and then assembled together on the canvas of scripture. Paul, he's painting these various portraits throughout the book of Titus. For example, in in chapter 1, we already already saw two of these. We saw the portrait of the elder, the list of elder qualifications, and the portrait of the false teacher. We covered those in the weeks past. In chapter 2 now, we have the portrait of the older generation followed by the portrait of the younger generation. And then in chapter 3, we have the portrait of the believer, as well as the portrait of the unbeliever. So I know it may sound like I'm just recycling sermon titles here with all this portrait stuff, but it's really it's what Paul is doing in the book of Titus, in this short letter. And today, as we enter into chapter 2, like I mentioned, Paul is splitting up his instruction along generational lines. And in verses 2 and 3, which is going to be our focus for this morning, He's setting his sight first on the older generation. Keep in mind here, if you look at verse 2, verse 3, it says older men and women, not old men and women. That's a good distinction. Just so you know, we're not calling anybody old here. Paul's not saying you're old. It's a relative term, just older. I know, though, you're probably still wondering, what age did he really have in mind when he says older? I mean, he's got to be thinking of something. Well, the word he uses in the Greek, it was used of people in their 60s and older, and sometimes they'll use for people in their 50s. I mean, I like to hear that, but, but regarding this older generation, even though they've, they've come far, they still haven't crossed the finish line in the race of faith. And nothing would be more tragic than for them to drop out of the race just before the finish line. Therefore, they still need instruction for how to finish strong, before we really get into this instruction, though, look at verse 1 with me. Verse 1, it sets up the context for our two verses and really for the rest of the chapter. Titus 2, verse 1. He says, But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Paul says to Titus, But as for you... And what he's doing here, if, if you can catch this, he's setting up this contrast immediately between Titus and the false teachers. If you are here with us the past few weeks, we were studying the, these false teachers in Titus chapter 1. Just look back at verse 16 of chapter 1, the last verse. And notice the 180 contrast here. Verse 16, he's talking about these false teachers. He says, They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. What's the next verse? Chapter 2, verse 1, he says, But as for you, you see the contrast? He says, it's a total 180, He's saying, Titus, you better not be like that. I mean, they professed to get to know God, but they denied him by, by their deeds. But as for you, be different. Be different from them. Be exemplary. Specifically, he says, they must, or Titus must speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Notice, he doesn't tell Titus to speak sound doctrine. He says, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Doctrine... It's incredibly valuable. We know that. It's foundational. We would be lost without it. Titus was already feeding them doctrine. But you know what is also important? It's applying that doctrine and living it out. Those are the things fitting for sound doctrine. What we see here in Titus 2 then, it's the unbreakable bond between doctrine and Christian ethics. And what I mean by that is just simply how to live rightly before the Lord. And Titus, he's to do what the false teachers failed to do, which is flesh out an ethic that logically emerges from right doctrine. In addition to teaching these churches orthodoxy, Titus is to teach them orthopraxy. You're probably wondering, what does that mean? Well, you, you probably heard of orthodoxy. It means right belief. Orthopraxy means right behavior. And he's to teach them both. Right belief, right behavior. And right behavior flows out of that right belief. Whereas these false teachers taught their doctrine but themselves lived hypocritical lives, Titus is to both set an example with his own deeds and teach how righteous living flows out of the truth, flows out of the gospel, flows out of doctrine. Next that's chapter 2. That is Titus 2 in a nutshell. That's what Paul is doing with these verses. And just, just to show you, look down at verse 11. A quick preview. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. And what does that grace do? Verse 12. Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly the present age. Well, that's to come. This morning we just want to look at verses 2 and 3 now. And we see and narrow in on this portrait of the older generation. And from these verses I want to show you four marks of godly older men and four marks of godly older women. Pretty straightforward. Four marks of godly older men and four marks of godly older women. And those of, among you here who belong to that older generation... You should observe these characteristics and live accordingly. This is who God wants you to be. This is the example he wants you to set. And for those of you here who belong to that younger generation, you should likewise listen up and heed these characteristics because this is who God wants you to become as you grow older. But to begin, though, let's start off with our first point, four marks of godly older men. Four marks of godly older men. Look at verse two. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. So starting off straightforward with the first mark he says here is temperate. The first first mark is temperate. What does temperate mean? Well, temperate. This word literally means holding no wine. And originally referred to abstinence from drinking. This is why some translations have the word sober here. But the word came to be used more broadly to describe overall self-control in one's appetites and desires. So think of the word moderation. Moderation. The temperament, he doesn't overindulge in anything because he realizes that moderation is the key. Really, to life. Moderation is the key. What I observe is a lot of Christians, they're very good at avoiding the big sins, the, the obvious ones. You know, the things that are clearly wrong. You know, most, most Christians, they're not going to go out, you know, commit adultery, murder, steal, stuff like that. They're not going to do all the big ones and, and whatnot. What they don't realize, though, is that sometimes good things can become sin. When you're not temperate, when you overindulge, even in good things, they can become sinful. Did you know that? Take food, for example. Is food good? Food is very good. I like food. Most of it. But overindulge in it, and you've got gluttony. Or take alcohol. And it's it's okay to drink alcohol if you're of the legal age. Not a sin just to drink. But if you overindulge, Even to the the smallest degree, you can quickly fall into the sin of drunkenness. Take relaxation, for example. Rest, relaxation. Those are good. Too much rest, too much relaxation. You quickly fall into laziness. Or finally, take entertainment. Fun, games, entertainment. That can be good as well. But too much can lead to irresponsibility. So you see why being temperate, being moderate, it's a virtue in Scripture. And whereas these these Cretans, you know, Titus is ministering on the island of Crete, they were characterized by gluttony and overindulgence. That's what they were known by, these Christian older men. The point is they're to be different. They're to be temperate, moderate. John Calvin said, quote, Nothing is more shameful than for an old man to indulge in youthful wantonness and by his countenance to strengthen the impudence of the young, end quote. A lot of serious words in there, but the point he's making is that, look, younger men, they're already given over to a lack of moderation, a lack of discipline. They're already given over to sinful extremes. You know what makes it worse? is when they see older men doing the same thing. When they see older men... Still living like that only justifies and fuels their immaturity and irresponsibility. Sadly, for example, in America we have no better example of this than a guy like Charlie Sheen, who's been in the news so much this past year. You can't avoid it, sadly. He's almost 50, and yet he's been the exact opposite of temperate. So if you want to know what temperate means, just think of the opposite of him. He's lived a life of sex, drugs, alcohol, with no moderation. And since he's received so much media exposure, like I said, you can't avoid it. Just think, how many younger men, they see this guy, you know, this middle-aged father, still living this extreme lifestyle, and they say to themselves, I guess you can still live like that at that age and pretty much get away with it. But like Calvin said, living like that, it's both sinful and it's a great shame to older men. There's really nothing more shameful for them. And instead, the young men in the church, they need older men who are different. And they serve as godly examples, first in being temperate. First in being temperate. That's the first mark of godly older men here in verse 2. The second mark comes right after it. It's dignified. Dignified. Dignified means honorable, noble, worthy of respect. Dignified person is respectable in his actions. And contrary to the younger man who oftentimes acts like a child, the older man is to carry himself with poise, maturity, dignity. And I like the word respectable here. He acts respectably in all things, and therefore he's afforded respect by other people. Dignified. And today we get the word dignitary from our word dignified. A dignitary is one who possesses an exalted rank or position of dignity and honor. We have like a foreign dignitary or, or diplomats. And because of their position, for example, of re- representing an entire nation, foreign diplomats are afforded a great deal of respect here in America. You know we have something called diplomatic immunity? You heard about You know about? You know what that is? It's where, because of their dignified position, they're essentially above the law, diplomats and foreign dignitaries. The assumption is that these people, they're so dignified and respectable that you know, we would never subject them to our laws and slow down the diplomatic process. And so therefore, by law in America, this is all true, foreign diplomats cannot be arrested or detained. They cannot be searched. They cannot be subpoenaed as a witness. And they cannot be prosecuted in a court of law. They're above the law. The position is seen as too dignified to place them under such charges. The funny thing is, actually, they can be given parking tickets. And in New York, which is where the United Nations is located, they're notorious for getting parking tickets but never paying them. And the city can't do anything about it. But anyway, foreign diplomats, they're dignified, it's not really based on their character, though. It's not really based on who they are. It's just based on their position. They have a job, and so they're treated with respect. But the point here in Titus 2 is different. It's that older men, they should likewise be dignified, act in a dignified manner, not because they hold some position, but simply because that's just who they are. It's just who they are. You don't have to be rich. You don't have to be upper class. You don't have to hold an important position. The instruction here is for older men to simply act responsibly, respectably in all things, and thereby honor God. It's to just be dignified. That is the second mark of a godly older man, to be dignified. Third on our list, the third mark is sensible. Sensible. This word sensible, it shows up all over the place in Titus. If you just read Titus, it'll take you like five minutes and just look for the word sensible five or six times or so. It pops up in the list for older men, for younger women, younger men. We saw it in the list for elders. It's going to show up in the list for all believers later on. It's just everywhere. And so it seems pretty clear, being sensible, it's a big deal to God. He wants pretty much everybody to be sensible, you might be wondering, okay, well, what exactly does it mean to be sensible? Well, being sensible it means, you can think of being rational or reasonable. It includes a soundness of mind and thinking that shows itself in a self-disciplined lifestyle. It's where you have a reasonableness about yourself or a level of discernment that comes from a long, seasoned Christian walk. You think things through. You don't speak rashly. You don't act rashly. You're in control of your thoughts, your actions. And that's what it means to be sensible. Now, I'm actually, I'm going to cut this one short, this third mark, because actually, if you look down at verse 6, a little preview, Paul's only instruction for younger men in this section is this, be sensible. That's all he says to them. It's probably because that's all they can handle. They can only handle one thing at a time. But that being said, you know, next week, and and young women, they have the same instruction to be sensible. So next week, we're going to spend plenty of time really fleshing out and understanding, unpacking what it means to be sensible. So I'm going to save a lot of this till next week. But for now, that's what it means, to be in control of your thoughts and actions, to be reasonable. And for now, understand the older men, in particular, are to be sensible. Third, to be sensible. But last on our list for older men, the last mark of godly older men is to be sound. To be sound. This word for sound also pops up several times in Titus. It means healthy or sturdy. Not talking about your actual health, but just your spiritual health. I like to picture, you know, picture one of those rope bridges crossing a a jungle canyon. Those really shady-looking rope bridges. Before crossing the bridge, you'd probably ask yourself, is that bridge sound? And what you're asking is, is the bridge sturdy, solid, firm, stable? That's what you're asking. That's what it means to be sound. Is it healthy? Is it safe to walk on? And whereas Paul earlier said that doctrine is to be sound, here he's saying that older men are to be sound in their character. and Specifically, he says they're to be sound in three things. You see it there in verse 2? They're to be sound in faith, love, and perseverance. Sound in faith, love, and perseverance. You're probably more familiar with a different trio in Scripture. Faith, love, and perseverance. You're probably more familiar with faith, love, and hope. You know, faith, hope, and love. The two are actually very similar. Perseverance and hope. And the ideas are similar. You persevere because you hope in what the future holds. And the Bible consistently teaches that these three attributes are cardinal Christian virtues. These are some of the characteristics that matter most to God. Just think back to when you were a kid. Maybe you're your team captain and you're picking people to be on your team for a game of basketball. So who are you going to pick? Well, you're going to look for the person who displays you know, maybe speed, agility, Accuracy, hopefully height. Get the tall people. These are the the characteristics you're going to be looking for. Well, God wants people to be on His team, so to speak, who chiefly display faith, love, and perseverance. These are the characteristics that God is looking for, for people to be on His team, so to speak. First, to be sound in faith means you no longer doubt God or question God. That's what it sort of means to be sound in faith. You never lose your confidence in Him or His plan. I counsel people sometimes, they seem like the opposite of this. For some people, their faith is like James, how James described it in James 5, like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. And it's just Their faith, it just comes and goes every which way. One day they believe, next day they don't. One day they're confident of their salvation. The next day, they're not. And The expectation here for older men is that they're not like this. They're different. This doesn't necessarily mean they have to have everything figured out under the sun. But when it comes to their commitment to Christ, they're sound. They're sound in faith. If questioned, these older men would respond like Peter in John 6.68. Simon Peter, Simon Peter answered to him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Or think of 2 Timothy 1.12. 12. Why don't you turn there? We're so close. Just turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1. These older men, to be sound in the faith, should likewise be able to say 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 12. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. That's what it looks like. That confidence in Christ, that soundness in the faith. That's what it looks like to be sound in faith. Secondly, here, older men are to be sound in love. To be sound in love simply means to be universally and unconditionally loving. Older men need to be truly loving. Loving their friends, their family, and even their enemies. Anyone can love their friends and family as Christ taught. But only those who are sound in love can love like God does and love even their enemies. Sadly though, the caricature of older men today is that as they do indeed get older, they become less and less loving. It's as if they're Compassion for the lost runs out. Their generosity toward the needy runs out. They've grown cold to others, which is tragic because older men should have the most to offer to others. Instead, of instead, believing older men should strive to be sound in love. Sound in love. And finally here, older men must be sound in perseverance. Sound in perseverance. Endurance similar word. It's especially needed for those who are older. For not only do they need to finish the course themselves, but people are watching. The younger generation is watching and they need those examples of perseverance. And nothing is more discouraging than to see people from the older generation quit just before the finish line. Just by way of example. Nothing is More tragic to me than to see people get divorced after 20, 30, 40 years of marriage. It happens. It's sad to see, though. I mean, Al Gore recently, not long ago in the news, he and his wife got divorced after 40 years of marriage. Sad to see. I think we all agree it's sad to see that they made it so far, but as he was just becoming an older man, he threw in the towel. Called it quits. He refused to persevere. As discouraging as that is, it's even more discouraging when older Christian men leave the faith after 40 years of following Christ. The trials of life become too much for them, and they loosen their grip on Christ for the passing pleasures of the world, and they fail to persevere. I think we know old age brings difficulties. I mean, just listen to the words of Solomon. King Solomon writing as an old man. Ecclesiastes 12.1, he says, Remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come, and the years draw near when you will say, I have no delight in them. I obviously can't say this from personal experience, but it's a pretty evident truth. And you can take Solomon's word for it. Life gets harder as you grow older. It's known. It's just how it works. But the solution is to cling to the cross even more. Amen. That's what it means to persevere. You run to your Savior. and That's what it looks to be, sound and perseverance. So that's it. That's for the older men. Four marks of godly older men. This is what they should look like. This is the standard that God wants them to pursue by his grace, of course. This is the standard of godliness for godly older men. The church needs that older generation to remain steadfast in the faith, free from the stain of sin, and really showing the younger ones how to navigate life in Christ. They need that. The younger generation needs that. They need that from the older men. And the young women need that from the older women as well. This brings us to the second half, the second part of this equation, four marks of godly older women now. From verse 3, look there. Four marks of godly older women. He says, Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. Let's go through these four marks now. First, reverent in their behavior. Reverent here means befitting, You can think of like ladylike, something like that. Like the men, these older women, they're to be respectable as women. This word was used in ancient times of the behavior expected of priests and priestesses performing duties at religious ceremonies. So, for instance, Nadab and Abihu, if you remember that story, they were irreverent in their behavior. They failed to be holy in the presence of God. This word, however, the meaning broadened, it no, longer, no longer was really used of priests, but it simply came to mean godly or holy behavior in general. And so the point is that older women are to act in a manner becoming of, of a godly and holy be, believer. Back in the first century, this is kind of interesting, there was a glimpse of a women's rights movement, you could say, with the emergence of the new Roman woman the new Roman women started to enjoy the freedoms typically reserved for men. And although this is a sad double standard, it became normal for women back then to start fulfilling their carnal desires and appetites, like the men did. Sadly, this behavior was more expected or more tolerated in men, but it was starting to become more prevalent in women. And since this island of Crete was very Romanized, it's likely that Paul is instructing these older Christian women to make sure that they stand out from their pagan society, that they're different, that they're reverent in their behavior. If I can reuse the illustration of Charlie Sheen, it's becoming more and more acceptable for women to start living like this today controlled by their fleshly desires and irreverent in behavior. By no means, don't get me wrong, am I trying to imply that it's okay for guys to behave like this? It's not. It's just a sad commentary on the state of our society when even the women who are usually more reverent, more restrained, are starting to act this way. To counter this, older women in the church need to provide better models for the younger women of what it looks like to be godly, and holy. First Peter 3 really really captures this. So let's turn there really quick. turn to first Peter three. It's near the end of your Bible, I'll just turn to the right a little bit. First Peter chapter 3. It really captures what what it looks like in practice for a woman to be reverent in behavior as God wants her to be. First Peter chapter 3. Look at verse 1. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. It's really quick. If you want to learn more about that word submission and what it really means, come back next week because we're going to get there next week. But look at verse 2. As they observe your what? Your chaste and respectful behavior. Verse 3. You're dormant let must not be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. The point is this. Ladies, if you want to be attractive to God, don't worry so much about the outside or about what our society says. Instead, put on reverent behavior. That's what God finds appealing. And this is the first mark of a godly older woman. To leave an example behind. Reverent in behavior. The next two marks on our list from verse 3 in Titus 2, they're related. For if a woman is to be reverent in her behavior, she needs to avoid these next two things. So secondly, second on our list, the second mark of a godly older woman It's to be not malicious gossips. Not malicious gossips. We all know what a gossip is, but here it's pretty interesting, the word used. Because the word in the Greek translated malicious gossips is the word diabolos, which you can probably guess, that's the exact same word used as a title for the devil. Now in the Greek, the word just means slanderer. But since Satan is the ultimate slanderer, the word eventually came to just be a title for him. But it just goes to show you how bad this slander is and just how poorly God thinks of it. John 8:44 44 says, You are of the father, your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. One commentator writes, Those who, in like fashion, falsely accuse and slander others are operating the devil's realm and advancing his cause. The point here is that older women must not lie like this. They must not spread lies about others, gossip or slander, especially when it's hurtful to others. And apparently this was a problem in Ephesus as well because Paul gives similar instruction there to the younger widows. I'll just read for you 1 Timothy 5.13. It says, So these women, at the same time, they also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house. And not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies, talking about things not proper to mention. Again, the point is that gossip, slander, must not characterize the respectable, mature, godly older woman. Must not be characterized by being a gossip. She must also not be characterized by being enslaved to much wine. That's our third mark. Look there in verse 3 again. Not enslaved to much wine. Now Paul's not here per- prohibiting consuming any alcohol, as we know. It's, it's not wrong to drink. But God's instruction on drunkenness is crystal clear in Scripture. Ephesians 5.18, just one example. Do not get drunk with wine. There you go. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Drunkenness can be defined as consuming any level of alcohol, really any substance for that matter, where you're no longer 100% in control of your thoughts, your actions, your speech. And so forth. And here in Titus, Paul, is, he goes back to using this enslavement vocabulary. You see that? Enslaved to much wine. Christ deliberately freed us from slavery to sin. And so in no manner should we return back to our old master. That's especially true concerning drunkenness. Alcoholism, it must have been a severe problem back then as it is today because Paul prohibits drunkenness in every single list of leadership that he gives. Everyone is a prohibition from overindulgence in drinking. Drunkenness and substance abuse seemingly have always been mankind's greatest snares. You just go back to Genesis 9. I always find this really just striking. Right after the flood, what does Noah do? Gets off the boat, plants a vineyard, gets drunk shames himself. I mean, just Talk about a failure in old age. And he was like 700 or something at that point. <laughs> but here, that the Christian older women, they must put off both slanderous speech and they must put off drunkenness or any form of it. Let's get to our fourth and final mark for God the older woman in verse 3. Teaching what is good. Teaching what is good. This phrase, for teaching what is good, it's it's just one word in the Greek, and it literally means teaching what is good. That's it. It, It's pretty simple. It's straightforward. Older women are to teach other women what is good, what is right. They're to model godliness and right behavior to the younger generation. And they're to instruct the younger ones how to, likewise, be holy. There's always a lady, though, that thinks to herself... I'm not a teacher. I don't have the gift of teaching. I can't lead a Bible study or prepare some lesson. That's just not me. But even if that's you, you can still do what this says. You can still teach what is good. And don't picture a classroom setting here. Rather, the picture, it's of an, it's of older women coming alongside of the younger women, linking arms with them and showing them how to navigate life. What's about. Maybe you know a younger woman out there who's who's single and just really struggling with contentment as she just really wants to get married. Or maybe you know a younger woman out there who's really struggling raising her her kids or something like that. The point here is that those who are older are to come alongside of such women and, and teach them what's good, teach them how to honor God through any circumstance with whatever they're going through in life. Being older, these women know things both intellectually and experientially, which means they've read the book and they've lived it out. They know. Their knowledge has, hopefully, become wisdom. and Therefore, they really become an invaluable resource for the younger generation. And this is really made explicit in verse 4. Look at verse 4 of Titus 2. He says, Older women are to be teaching what is good. Why? Verse 4, So that... They may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, so on and so forth. And this last point here, I really want to drive this last point home. So listen up. If you're out there, and especially if you're a part of that older generation, pay attention here. The church absolutely needs you to be filling this role of discipleship in the church. Did you catch that? It's absolutely essential to the function of the church that the older generation is pouring into and investing in the younger generation. It's a must. It's obviously not just for women, you know 2 Timothy 2, 1 Peter 5 make it clear this is for the men as well. In fact, the only reason I think Paul doesn't bring this up for the men here is because they already knew that. It was a given. The men knew that they should be discipling other men. He's making it explicit for the women here. All people should be doing this. I want to drive this final point home. So turn with me to Judges chapter 2. It'll be our last text we're going to look at. Judges chapter 2. It's near the beginning of your Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. So Judges chapter 2. I want you to think back to the generation of the conquest. The conquest of the Holy Land. Remember your Jewish history. God, he delivers Israel out of Egypt, right? But the generation, the generation of the Exodus, they were wicked, they were unbelieving. Therefore, God judged them. He sentenced them to wander the wilderness for 40 years and he said at the time of that sentence at the beginning, he says, anyone over the age of 20 is going to die in the wilderness. You will never see the promised land. And they did. They all died in the wilderness. That was their sentence. But everyone under the age of 20, God was going to raise up, and he's going to give them the promised land. So as those 40 years went by, that new generation rose up. and They became the generation of the conquest, the generation that actually entered the land and conquered the land. That generation, they were a faithful generation. They were a good generation. They were faithful. They trusted God. They followed God's word. And God rewarded them with military victory, prosperity. Ultimately, he gave them the land, the promised land, generation of the conquest. The story doesn't end there, though. See, when you get to the book of Judges, you find out that although this generation of Israelites who conquered the promised land was faithful, they failed to pass on that faithfulness to the next generation. Their greatest failure was their parenting. And so guess what? The generation that followed them was once again wicked and unbelieving. Just one generation, it flipped back to nothing. And so look at Judges 2, verse 10. Just one verse. It says, All that generation... The generation of the conquest also were gathered to their fathers, which means they died. And there arose another generation after them who, what? Did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. They didn't know the Lord. They didn't know the work he had just done. Are you kidding me? How how could they not know? How could they fail to pass that on just to that next generation? But they did. The older generation failed to instruct the younger generation in the Lord. And so in just one generation, things go from good to bad for Israel, from believing to unbelieving. They just missed everything. One generation. And listen, the same can and does happen in the church today. Today. If the, older, if the older generation does not pour into the younger generation, this is what's going to happen. They're going to grow up. They're not going to know the Lord or the things which he has done. And this is why we have these instructions in Titus and elsewhere for the older to be investing in the younger. So again, if you're out there and you're a part of that older generation, what are you doing about this? Whether it's formal or informal, doesn't matter. Are you investing in? Are you discipling the younger generation? If you're not, get started. Again, you don't have to prepare a huge Bible study, preach a sermon, teach a lesson, whatever. just, Just do something. Look out for the younger ones. Invite them over. Show them how to navigate life as believers. Instruct them in doing good. Model for them faithfulness in Christ. Lead them to know God. Teach them. That's what it looks like. Just somehow start influencing their lives. Don't wait for them to call you. You pick up the phone, you call them first. You think God wants this? You think God wants this to be, this function to be going on in the church? He does. Of course he does. And so whatever it is, whatever gifting you have, start now getting involved in this work of discipleship. This is what God wants. This is the the picture of the older generation he leaves behind for the older men and the older women. And he wants them to be pouring into and discipling and, and making sure the next generation knows him and knows what he has done. Let's pray. Precious Father in heaven, we... Just bow before you right now this morning, praising your name and praising you for leaving behind this portrait of older men and women, Lord. We, we thank you now. We, we praise you for the older, godly men and women in the church. We are truly thankful for them. We honor and respect them for their knowledge, their experience, their wisdom, Lord. And, and we thank you for them and for the years of perseverance you've given them, Lord. We pray now for that older generation that you would indeed help them Help them to to finish strong, to persevere, to finish the course, as you say to all of us. Help them to be godly according to the standard, by your grace. None of us can do this on our own, Lord. We need faith in Christ as our foundation in pursuing you. But help them to to meet the standard and to leave behind an example for that younger generation, Lord. And I pray also for, for them to be doing that, to be actively involved in the lives of the younger ones. Not to wait for them, wait for an opportunity to come around, but to make an opportunity themselves to to start getting in the lives of the younger generations. That there can be active, this active discipleship of men discipling men, women discipling women. Help this to start happening here at Berean Bible Church, Lord, where we can be more faithful in this process. This is how you grow the church. This is how you bless the church. This is how you ensure the next generation knows you. So may we not forsake this Very weighty and important task. Bless us, Lord, as we do so. And as always, help us to be focusing on Christ our Savior, especially as the weeks draw near to the time when we remember his birth. Help us to be Christ-centered in all we do, even in this discipleship. In your name we pray. Amen.